time that we're going to spend together now is going to be focused toward what was achieved at the cross of Calvary. Now let's first move through a little bit of logic, a series of point by point connected rationales that will drive us in the direction we want to go. If the great controversy between good and evil was built upon the premise of misrepresentation of God's character, then the great controversy between good and evil can only be won by some very clear demonstration of the truth about God's character. Let's back up and say it from another angle. If Satan's kingdom is built upon the premise of lies about God, which then in turn turn human hearts away from God, then we would expect that God's response to those lies and the means by which he would win the great controversy would not be by sheer muscle power. It wouldn't be by sheer crushing power. God would respond to the lies by telling the truth. So when Jesus came to this world... In John chapter 8, you will remember, he said, in verse 32, you shall know the truth, and the truth will set you free. You will be liberated by the truth. Now, when Jesus in John chapter 8 made that statement, he was not referring to truth in general, but truth in the specific. The controversy in John chapter 8 was over the character of God. And Jesus very clearly told the religious leaders of that time, you are of your father, the devil, and the deeds of your father you will do. And they argued back and said, no, 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 no. We are Abraham's children, and there is only one father for us, and that's God. And Jesus said, if you were of God, and God were your father, you would love me, because I came from him. That's all in John chapter 8. And that's the context to Jesus' declaration, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. You shall know the truth about what, specifically? About God, the truth about the character of God. And in coming to know the truth about the character of God, liberation occurs in a person's life. Jesus came to this world on a very specific mission. According to the Bible, In our text that we've been referring to over and over again, in Revelation chapter 12, verses 7 and 8, war broke out in heaven, and Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought, but they didn't prevail, and their place wasn't found any longer in heaven. So Satan's entire campaign was then transferred to planet Earth. And in the Garden of Eden, he didn't approach them with force. He approached Adam and Eve with what? 
deception. And what was the deception? Well, basically, yeah, basically, God is holding out on you. God is keeping back from you something that would be for your greater good. He doesn't want you rising to a higher state of existence because God knows that in the day that you eat of this forbidden fruit, you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You'll be elevated. You'll be exalted to equality with God. And he doesn't want that. So read between the lines. What is he saying? God is essentially looking out for who? God. God is self-centered. God doesn't really care about you, Adam and Eve. In fact, he's holding you back. He's holding you down. So Satan's kingdom is built upon the premise of misrepresenting the character of God. Enter Jesus Christ. Michael who began the war with Satan in heaven, bears the name who is like God and comes to earth as the incarnate one to reveal the truth about God. And so the Apostle Paul, in retrospect, now from where Paul's standing, the cross has already occurred, the resurrection of Jesus has occurred, the great controversy between good and evil has been in principle, at least, one at the cross. So some years later, Paul now, in the light of the cross, says in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 and 3 through 5, for we walk in the flesh, yes we do, but we do not what? War according to the flesh. So are we in a war according to Paul? Yes, but what kind of war? Paul's about to unravel for us the meaning of the war we're engaged in. He says it's not a physical, flesh and blood kind of war. He says we walk in the flesh, but we don't war according to the flesh. So then he explains, for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God... For the pulling down of strongholds. What kind of strongholds? Watch this. Casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. And bringing every what into captivity? Every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. So, so according to Paul, where is the great controversy really raging? In our minds, between our ears in our thought processes, right? In our minds, that's where the great controversy is really taking place. Yes, it's taking place all around us in the world. But the real heart of this battle is in our thoughts. Specifically, our thoughts about God. The way we think and imagine God to be. Here in this version, the New King James Version, it says casting down arguments. In the King James Version, rather than the word arguments, it says casting down imaginations. Another version says casting down ideas. The devil has brought certain ideas to this world about the character of God. So look at the world for a minute. Just look at this world we live in right now. 
approximately 6.5 billion people, 6.6 billion people approximately. That's a lot of people. Are there ideas out there about God? The whole world is filled with ideas about God. About 2 billion people on the planet believe that God eternally torments people. That's quite a thought about God, isn't it? And then another approximately 1 billion people on the planet believe that God exercises a dominating control over all human affairs so that every time tragedy strikes, God orchestrated it for his sovereign will. Another 1 billion people on the planet believe that God is presiding over an endless cycle of reincarnations so that they can, through suffering, eventually climb the ladder to Godhood and merge with the collective consciousness of deity. The world is filled with ideas about God. The devil has done his work. And according to the Apostle Paul, what is the work, the mission of the believer in Christ? To pull down strongholds, to pull down arguments, to pull down false images and imaginings and ideas about God. To flood the world with true and accurate theology. To flood the world with the truth about God as revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. Paul explains further in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. He says, if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has what? Blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. For it is God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, who has shown where again? In our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Notice all the words here in this one little portion of Scripture, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 4 through 6. Notice all the words that have to do with our picture of God. First of all, he says that the devil's agenda is to create a veil. Where's the veil? He says it's in people's minds. And what gives this veil power? He says, because they don't believe. Well, what is it they don't believe? They don't believe what they see in Jesus to be the truth about God. So Paul says their minds are blinded. Blinded to what? The light of the knowledge of the glory of God. The character of God is blocked from their view through theological constructions that cause people to believe that God is something, someone other than who he really is. I mean, imagine what it would be like to go your whole life believing that if you don't comply with God's requirements, that he will literally torture you for all eternity without end in a conscious state of pain. I'm telling you what, there's some motivation in that doctrine. But it's motivation to serve God out of sheer terror. 
Not too awfully long ago, as I shared with you, I think not long ago, I found myself in a very strange situation, sitting on an airplane. And it dawned on me, and this may come as a shock to you, for the first time in my life, it dawned on me that I'm an atheist. I didn't even know I was an atheist. But there I sat on the plane, and the man sitting next to me introduced himself to me, and we began to have a discussion, and he informed me that he was an atheist. And he saw that I was reading something spiritual, I don't know if it was the Bible or something, and I told him a little bit about what I do. And when he announced that he was an atheist, I thought, you know, I think I am too. So I said to him, I said, Actually, I'm an atheist, too. He said, no, you're not. Don't play with my mind. You're reading the Bible or something there, aren't you? I said, no, I am an atheist. He said, how so? I said, could you describe to me the God you don't believe in? He said, you are playing with my mind. I said, no, I just want you to describe this God that you don't believe in. So he proceeded to describe a God of eternal torment that he had been raised to believe in, a God who is a micromanaging control freak who orchestrates the abduction of children for his sovereign will. He began to describe a God who has even purgatory for those who are going to ultimately be saved. And as he kept describing what he believed about this God that he didn't believe in, you know what I mean? I said to him, see what I mean? I'm an atheist. Because I don't believe in the existence of that God either, unless it's the devil. And then it's not God. So I don't believe that any such God as you have described exists. But, I said, I'm not an atheist in the ultimate sense, because may I describe to you another possibility. And then I described to him a God as best I could in the moments we had, a God of infinite, other-centered, self-giving love who would rather die than live without Him. And I said to Him, I'm not asking you to believe on the spot, but just hypothetically, if such a God, as I just described, could exist, would you want Him to? And He said, I would be a fool not to. So the world out there is waiting for the revelation of the truth about God. The truth about a God they've never seen. The world is filled with unbelievers who are unbelievers because they are rejecting a false picture. They've never even encountered the true God, so you can't even really say that they're atheists. Like I said to this guy, I said, you're not really an atheist because... You're hoping that such a God, as I described, a good God could exist. He said, well, if I'm not an atheist, what am I? I said, well, you're not a believer either. So maybe you're an agnostic or maybe you're a seeker. And he was open to the possibility, to the hope that the universe might be governed by a good God. But then he said, well, how do you explain all the pain and suffering in the world? And I said, well, according to the good God that I'm telling you about, he came to this earth and he said, looking at all the pain and sorrow in the world, and he said to his followers, an enemy has done this. 
So the world has been invaded by a foreign force and pain and suffering is the result of that controversy between good and evil. God is not presiding over it all. God's warring against the bad stuff and has a plan for ultimately bringing it all to an end so that, I told this guy, I said, could you enjoy believing that there will come a point where there will never ever be starvation again or war again or murder again or rape again or child abuse again? Could you enjoy the potential at least of the idea that there could be a universe somewhere in the future where nobody ever even sheds a tear? And he said, why wouldn't I? See, that's where a lot of people are in this world. They've been lied to. And so they reject God on the premise of the lies they've been told. But what if? What if? The world were to be flooded with the beautiful light of the glory of God as revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. What would happen then? Seriously, what would happen then? I think there are countless people in this world who would say, why didn't someone tell me? If that's what God is really like, I want to believe in him. And so Jesus came to this world, according to Paul, to wage war against the blindness of mind that Satan had forced upon the human race. So what did we encounter, page two of your outline, when Jesus came? Well, we encountered a whole new set of principles other than what has been modeled for the world in the name of God. In John chapter 12, verses 23 to 32, one of the most powerful sections of scripture you will ever read, Jesus said, the hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. The hour that he's referring to here is the cross. And it is an hour when he is to be what, according to this? Glorified. Verse 24, most assuredly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and what? Dies, it will remain how? Alone. What is God's opinion of being alone, by the way? He told Adam it's not good for man to be alone. God's not into loneliness. God is diametrically opposed to loneliness. And God has no intentions of spending all of eternity future alone. He has a plan to take you and me with him into eternity future. And that's the whole reason Jesus came. To win our hearts back to loyalty so that we could live eternally with him. So Jesus says, he's just contemplating out loud. He says, there's only one way for multiplication to take place. Only one way. The seed has to die in order to germinate through its death to bring forth much fruit. So Jesus, in a symbolic sense, is contemplating the result of his death. And you're reading between the lines, aren't you? What will be the result of his death on the cross? There will be 
many men and women who will, through his death, be funneled straight into God's eternal kingdom future. There will be a vast harvest of souls as a result of his death on the cross. Well, how does this work exactly? He goes on and he explains further. He says in verse 25, He who loves his life will lose it. Now that is backwards, that is upside down, that is completely inside out. We don't think that way, but Jesus does. He's telling us the secret of the character of God. The secret of his kingdom and how it operates. Anyone who lives with primary interest in himself. What does Jesus say? What happened to that person? They will die. But notice what he says further. Anyone who loves his life will lose it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it unto eternal life. Now, that's kind of that's a little harsh language. We don't like this word hate in this kind of context. But it doesn't mean to take a position of emotional aggression toward oneself. Jesus is not telling you that you should develop or adopt a low opinion of yourself or to become your own enemy. He's saying, by contrast, there are one of two ways you can live, one of two sets of principles you can operate on. You can either live for yourself at the expense of others, and you will, in that way of operating, eventually expire. There is no place in God's concentric, other-centered universe for selfishness. And you can't exist in a society that's governed by love when you're governed by selfishness. That's what he's telling us here. So Jesus says, if you live for yourself, you're going to die. But then he says, but if you hate your own life in this world, not with emotional hatred, but with a hierarchy of priorities, put it that way. In other words, you're surrounded with people, right? You have a spouse, you have children, you have neighbors, you have people all around you in this world. And Jesus is saying, put yourself after, beneath the best good of all others. Live for others. And it is a process of dying that yields life. Because the more you live for others, the more you create a series of reciprocal, other-centered actions toward you. He said it best, I think, in a scripture you can write in your margin, where Jesus said in Luke chapter 6 and verse 38, something very amazing. He said, give, and it shall be given unto you. Pressed down, shaken together, and running over, shall men give into your bosom. What did Jesus just say there? He says that the only way to be filled is to be willingly depleted. If you live for others, they will begin living for you. Nobody has to look out for themselves. It works in marriage. The fastest way to ruin a marriage is for each to begin focusing on their needs. You see this all the time with young couples today. When you ask a, a young lady or a young man in marriage counseling sessions now, what are you looking for in a husband? 
More times than not, the young lady or the young man will say, I'm looking for someone to meet my needs. Meet your needs? Don't advertise that too loud. Can you imagine advertising for a husband or for a wife? And as you interact with possible individuals who you might spend your life with, and when you get to know them and you, you tell them and you communicate, what I'm looking for is someone to meet my needs. Translating in their mind, they're not going to say it out loud, but you know what they're hearing? You're looking for someone you can suck dry of everything they've got. You're looking for someone morning, noon, and night that you can just pull everything you can out of them. You're looking for someone to meet your needs. How about this? I'm looking for someone who's compatible with my personality that I can serve. I'm looking for someone that I can pour all my energies into living for them. I think you're more likely to get a wife, (laughs) more likely to get a husband, and you're more likely to be successful in your relationship. Jesus is explaining how love works. Anyone who lives for self will ultimately perish. There's no place in God's final universe for self-centeredness. But anybody who hates his own life in this life will keep it for eternal life. And then he applies it to himself. This is what the cross is all about. Now, he says in verse 27, my soul is troubled. Why is his soul troubled? Well, he's going to the cross. So he says, what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. Save who? Save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. So Jesus feels in his heart a reluctance to go to the cross. But then he pours himself into it. And he says, yes, suffering is involved. Yes, there is an awesome death to self involved. But there's also the Father's glory involved. And so I'm going to have to make a choice here between God's glory or my self-preservation. Jesus knows... And this is what he's communicating to us here. Jesus knows that if he gives his life at the cross, the Father's character will shine forth in that self-sacrificing act. And many hearts in witnessing Calvary will be turned back to the Father. He knows this. So he makes a choice. He says, I can either live for myself or I can live for the Father. And I choose to live for the Father's glory. But more than that, Look at verse 31. Now is the judgment of this world. Now is the ruler of this world cast out. And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. Do you see what just happened there? Jesus says that when I die on the cross, three things at least will happen. And there's more here, but three things that I want to call your attention to will happen. When I die on the cross, Jesus says, number one, the Father will be glorified. How so? But His character will be magnified. It will be revealed that God loves all others more than Himself. So number one, at the cross, the Father is glorified. Number two, in tandem, as a residual effect of the Father's glorification, the Prince of this world will be cast out. Satan will be defeated by the magnifying of God's character at the cross. And number three, everyone will be drawn to me. 
That is to say, there will be such a display of self-giving love that anybody who sees this sacrifice will be drawn back to me. Which loops right back to what he explained. If I live for myself, I'll remain alone. But if, like a seed, I give my life and I die, there will be much fruit. Many will be drawn to me and God's kingdom will be populated with men and women and children who have come to know and love God. And that, my friends, is the nature of the great controversy and the way Jesus won the great controversy at the cross. Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord. Jesus won the great controversy by the revelation of God's selfless love. Are you drawn to him? Is the question that he holds out, that the gospel holds out. Father in heaven, thank you for your word and for sending Jesus into this world to show us what you're really like. Draw us to you, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.